Uh, open your Bibles, please, to Mark uh, chapter 12 near the end and the beginning of Mark 13. We'll just be there for a minute, and then we're actually going to go back to Psalm 8. And just want to direct our attention to the end of Mark so I can tell you why we're going to be in Psalm 8 this morning. As we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, we've seen the whole flow of Jesus coming and people being utterly confused about who he is and what his purpose and mission was. And really, the first time he came, obviously, was to redeem mankind. Uh, But it was also to set the record straight. Set the record straight about who God is, what he expects from us, how to restore our relationship with God. And in the last couple of months, we saw how aggressively he went after the religious leaders of Israel, those who were ordained to represent God. And they were representing him poorly, giving us a false impression of God, his character, his nature. They presented a God who's unmerciful, demanding of strict adherence, not only to the law, but man-made laws. To the extent that we saw two weeks ago that this poor widow down to her last two coins that they thought she needed to buy her salvation, leaving her destitute. And he also exposed the religious leaders as those who devour widows' houses, that these weren't godly men at all, most of them. And their entire religious system was corrupt and it was all going to come down And one of his disciples said in chapter 13, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Remember, this was a temple that Herod built. The original temple had been torn down. Herod rebuilt the temple. It took 43 years of building. It was a marvelous building, plated with gold. Can't imagine what what this this building looked like, especially in a world where you know there's no skyscrapers and other uh, amazing architecture. This was the focal point of the holy city, and people came from all around to see this magnificent building. And Jesus answered, he wasn't impressed with the building at all. He says, "Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another." which will not be torn down. In other words, utter judgment. The entire religious system, the Pharisees, is coming down. It's coming down. Brick by brick, stone by stone. It's utterly unthinkable how that would happen. How do you undo 43 years of architecture? And yet it would indeed happen in A.D. 70. The holy city would be invaded, sacked, millions killed. The temple burned, the gold removed after it melted, and then stone by stone, unbuilding the temple. All that's left is what we see today, the corner, foundation, platform, plateau of the temple. And yet God says in His Word that it'll be rebuilt eventually. And many found that unthinkable. Uh, you know, How is that going to happen, and when is that going to happen? Well, the apostles wanted to know that too. And 
where we're headed now in Mark is Jesus took his apostles across the Kidron Valley on the east side of the temple up to the Mount of Olives where they could have a glorious view of the city and started explaining to them what the end times or the last things will be like. It's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, we have lots of Jesus' teaching recorded in Scripture, but where we get a major chunk where Jesus is teaching directly to, to his people in an extended um, teaching, that's called the Discourse. And there's five major discourses recorded in Scripture. One of them is coming up, the Olivet Discourse. And as I was pre- preparing to teach on it, I was reminded of just how complicated eschatology or the study of end times is. Very complicated eschatology. One-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. And it's not all contained in one spot. And you've got to put together the pieces of the puzzle, just like a jigsaw puzzle, and kind of find those corner pieces and your border pieces and start filling it in. And certainly, evangelicals can all agree on one thing. Jesus is coming back. Be ready. And yet, he's given us so much more information that to stop there wouldn't be doing the Bible justice. And yet, theologians argue, sometimes bitterly, over eschatology. It's almost embarrassing, almost a black eye to the church. Much of the controversy surrounds whether or not the thousand-year reign of Christ when he returns the millennial kingdom is an actual millennial kingdom or if that's just figurative language. You've got your amillennialists who say there's no millennial kingdom. This is the kingdom right now. You know, well, it's been over 2,000 years, so it can't be an actual millennium. But we've got good friends, good theologians we, we know and love and trust and even quote their materials who are amillennialists, except when the Jews returned to Israel in the 50s, that led their heads uh, perplexed. Because in their theological system, the church has replaced Israel. And all the promises God made to Israel have been null and void because of their disobedience. And the church is now Israel. They call it replacement theology. And yet, if you interpret the Bible with a normal, literal, historical, grammatical approach, it seems that God has much for Israel. And that there's a future for the nation Israel. And Israel indeed came back to their land in the 50s. It's their nation. About five years ago, the Sanhedrin reconvened the 70 leaders of Israel. Um, There's plans to rebuild the temple. All this is going on. Pretty amazing, fascinating, exciting times we're living in. Jesus said he'd come back when all the world has heard the gospel and with the advent of modern technology, as, as John Dooley was talking about, with Skype and, and other modern technology, it seems like we're close. You know, the old saying is, we're closer than we've ever been. Yeah, obviously. Tomorrow we'll be even closer than we, we are today. But uh, really, it seems that uh, history is moving forward at an uh, uh, exciting, almost alarming rate towards the second advent of Christ. And he says, be ready. Be found faithful. And so, uh, thank you, John and Cynthia, for your faithfulness for what God has called you to do in, in Morocco. Whether it's one believer or a million believers, he just said, go. And you've gone and you've preached the word.
what I, I want to do today is go to the Word of God and answer this question, what is man's place? Because when you go to study eschatology, eschatology in depth, one of two things happens to you. Either you swing to one side of the pendulum and you feel utterly insignificant. The events are too big and too bold and too complicated in you know, a third of the world's population wiped out in judgment during the Great Tribulation. Armageddon, the whole thing, it just makes you feel like, who am I? And you almost get paralyzed with fear to, to go and, uh, and to witness. Or the pendulum swings the other way. The people get so fascinated with eschatology that it becomes their grid by which they interpret all of life. They love to watch the news, and every current event, they're like, oh, that's, that's got to be this, and that's got to be this. And you got the people who think there's like a hidden code in the Bible, and if you add up the numbers just right, it'll tell you the day Jesus is coming back, even though he was quite clear to tell us the day and time in which he's coming back was not for man to know or the Son of Man uh, to know. And everybody who's tried to predict that date has been humiliated embarrassed, and embarrassed. Who was the latest? What was the guy's name? Somebody help me out here. Campbell. Campbell. Thank you. Camping. Harold Camping. Yeah, Harold Camping. Tried twice. It was wrong, wrong both times. Uh, there's uh, is it Mary, Mary Baker Eddy in the Adventist church who had a prophecy about the day Jesus would come back. He didn't. They call it the Great Disappointment in their church. And they said he came back spiritually. We didn't notice. <laughs> so... He will come back, and he will come in the clouds, and the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll, and there will be absolutely no doubt that he's back. You won't miss it. So, but you want to know more about eschatology, but I don't want it to happen in such a way that I have seen people studying eschatology almost put themselves in the place of God and say, oh, we're going to let him have it. It's payback time. And I'm like, wow, where's your humility? If not for being one of the elect... It would be a, a completely terrible time. We were doing eschatology uh, once in the college group, and one of the kids, one of the young men had said, Boy, I hope I get to be around during the tribulation. It's going to be awesome. Like, were you hearing what we just read? <laughs> so I'm kind of a pre-trib rapture guy. I hope he's taken me up before the tribulation. And so before we study eschatology, I want us to prepare our hearts to be put in a rightful place to receive this teaching. Really, this speaks to the greater matter of man's significance. All men searching for significance. Even those who don't believe in God and are completely secular, materialistic, humanist. Man is just a collection of chemicals that has evolved over billions of years. Even he is searching for significance. I don't know where why the unbeliever would want to be significant at all and where you can come up with any kind of meaningful significance. They say it was built into our DNA by evolution as a survival mechanism. If you didn't have a need to be significant, there would be no point in living, which is true, right? If life was insignificant and you didn't matter, why go on doing anything? In fact, it's what the entire book of Ecclesiastes is about viewing life through the lens of the unbeliever, and all becomes vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything you build up, it's gone tomorrow. You amass a fortune, you leave it to their, your kids, they spend it in a week. 
You build a great empire, you're gone, the next king tears it right down. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, but at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, spoiler alert, (laughs) Solomon lets us off the hook and he says, viewed through the eyes of the believer, that the sum total of man is this, to fear God and obey His commandments, and now everything has significance. When you do ministry, you'll find that teens struggle with this question all the time. They want to be significant. They want to be important. They want their life to matter. They want attention until they get it, and then they don't want it. Stop looking at me. Stop staring at me. Stop thinking about me. They want to be special. They watch American Idol, and they wish they were there on that final stage at the end, awarded. This is ironic, the whole title of the show. It is idolatry, is it not, to want to place yourself above God and, and be of ultimate significance. Of course, before they've even crowned the champion of American Idol, they're already planning next season's American Idol. Men struggle with this quest for significance. The movie The Incredibles really captured this. You love the movie, right? The Incredibles. Bob Parr. Just an average guy. Boy, I'd love to shoot par. (laughs) It's not average for me. But Bob Parr, he's working in an insurance firm, kind of a life of anonymity, but nobody knows his secret identity. He is Mr. Incredible. And he's struggling between being anonymous and yet wanting to live a life of significance. And really, the whole movie is, is about that. What about moms? We just celebrated Mother's Day, and the cry you hear from moms more than anything is, does what I do matter? I finish five loads of laundry, and there's five more to do. I mean, the the laundry just gets dirty again. The beds just need making again. My wife will often say, my my life's work is feeding you people. (laughs) Right? When you cook the meal, and you clean it up, and you don't even have time to rest in the next meal, especially when you have kids in the house. Good golly, they eat so much. I used to bring leftovers to church for my lunch. There there ain't no leftovers no more. I'm wasting away. Celebrities, when they're candid in their interviews, they say they wish they didn't have to be celebrities anymore. Okay, we'll stop. And they say, I can't. I can't. It has a grip on them. And you just think about human life and that we'll spend billions to save one life and then a tsunami will wipe out 100,000 like that. And it starts to really make you feel small and insignificant. And if we stopped the sermon right now, I would apologize for leaving you in a state of depression. And yet that's just the introduction. Everyone is searching for significance Everyone wants a story that matters, writing my own story. And yet our stories have no significance unless they're encapsulated in God's story. God's story is the ultimate story. He's the author of it. He's defined the setting. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. He put the animals and man on the planet, so those the characters... He's designated man as the protagonist and the antagonist 
That's all of us, right? We're the hero and the villain of this story. Your old nature and your new nature. The great antagonist, of course, Satan. And the great protagonist, Jesus Christ, the God-man. The perfect man, the last Adam. And if we can find our story inside God's story, we can live a life of significance. If you try to write your own story apart from God, one of two things will happen. Either your story will be way too significant in your own mind, or you will live a life of utter dissatisfaction, frustration, and hopelessness. One of the hardest things for the preacher to do is to preach a sermon where you're talking about two equal and opposite forces putting the Christian in a perfect place of homeostasis. Or if you've ever pulled... Have you seen one of those kids' toys with the little disc and the rubber band and you kind of get it spinning and then you pull it really tight and it, it, it goes... and it shakes really fast and then it just stops on a dime if you pull just right. And whenever we find ourselves living in, in biblical tension, it's a good thing and God wants us to be in that center of His will. And when life starts to go off track, it's usually because something's pulling too hard. We're thinking too much on one thing and not thinking about the other thing. We're thinking about the law too much and not about grace, or we're thinking about grace too much and not about the law, right? I'm insignificant. Yeah, but God calls me to obedience, so my life must have significance. Otherwise, why bother doing anything? Or my life has too much significance. You know? Boy, I matter. Here I am, interim senior pastor of the largest church in Tehachapi. What are there, two million pastors in America? You know? So, is it significant or not? Yes. It's not so significant that God can't replace me in a heartbeat with somebody else, right? His ministry will go on. And yet it's not so insignificant that I should just walk into the pulpit and not study or not prepare or not plan. No, I should use the gifts and the time that God has given me to bring glory to His name. Amen. So Psalm 8, God has given us Psalm 8 as this great corrective to put man in his rightful place. Where do we belong? Where's our place? Where do we fit in? Where do we fit in? I don't want to be like the Pharisees and religious leaders thinking, I fit in here when God says, no, it's, it's here. It's here. Like Jesus said in the parable, better to go to the banquet and sit at the end of the table and be invited up to the head than to sit in the seat of honor and have them say, what are you doing up here? And so Psalm 8 is going to start from a place of great humility. And if you get up and leave to go to the bathroom or go home in the middle of the sermon, you're going to feel utterly insignificant. So don't leave. If you leave and come back 20 minutes later, you're going to feel way too significant. So stay through the whole thing. We've got to stay in this perfect tension. All right, And it's elusive if you think that there's a place where you could put yourself smack dab in that perfect place and you think you've got the balance perfectly figured out. No, life is kind of this. We go a little too far this way and a little too far this way and it's the Word of God and His Holy Spirit that keeps us right in the center of His will. We need these correctives in our life. We need the Word of God to shape and mold us and to keep us from getting out of this balance.
Psalm 8 is a psalm of David, and it's written in a chiastic structure. It's just a fancy way of saying it's balanced. There's parallel lines all the way through the poem, and they kind of climax in the middle of the poem, and that's the key part of the poem. So it's all designed to bring your attention, boom, right to this spot. And so hopefully as I preach, when we get to the climax, there will be a big crescendo in the room. Cue music. That's the, the gist of the psalm. Isn't that a wonderful way God inspired David to write this song? I always wish I knew what the music sounded like. Then we could end all the worship wars. We, we would actually have the music. But I think there's a lesson even in that. Why didn't God give us the music that goes with the lyric? He wants us to use our creative talents and our great diversity to glorify Him in a myriad of different ways musically. But this one's written on a stringed instrument. I doubt it was electric guitar. Um, it starts with a, a, a scription of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, that's a great way, I would say, to start anything you want to do in life. First thing when you get up in the morning, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I was uh, looking up an outline of this psalm from my, my Old Testament professor, Dr. Barrick, and he had in bold letters under his exposition, Praise prevents pride. Praise prevents pride. Well, Praise of God. If you're going to wake up first thing in the morning and praise yourself, that's not going to prevent pride. If you're struggling with pride, can I see a hand? All right. If you didn't raise your hand, you've, you've acknowledged that you do. Okay, so pretty much that's everybody in the room. And when we're busy praising ourselves or thinking we're not getting things we deserve and we should get more attention and we should be more appreciated and praise is the antidote. Praise is always the antidote to our pride, to our dissatisfaction, to our discontentment, to our complaining and grumbling. Hard to do any of those things when you're praising God Almighty. We don't praise Him enough. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O oh Lord, all caps, Jehovah, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, I am. O oh Lord, this great God who is outside of his universe, he's above his creation. He's not the created one, he's the creator. He always was, always is, always will be. He's the great I am. O oh Lord, you're so otherly. You're so otherworldly. You seem so far and above. How mighty are you? How great are your ways above my ways? Who can understand your thoughts? Who's your counselor? This is Yahweh God. And yet, He's our Lord. So personal. So close. This God of the universe is our personal God. We use this phrase, our personal Lord and Savior. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? The, the, the personal refers to this. He is not distant and far from us. Oh, in His nature, He's distant and far from us. 
And I tell you this morning that any time you shrink God down to a level that you can comprehend, He's no longer the God of the universe. And it may feel more comforting in your need to be sovereign over your own life and control all the little aspects of your life to have a small God. But in the long run, trust me, that is a horrible way to go about life. You need a big, giant, awesome, incomprehensible God. Makes the problems of life therefore seem quite insignificant compared to... He can handle it. Mendez family gave me a birthday gift five years ago that says, Good morning, this is God. I'll be handling all your problems today. Which is great because a lot of problems come across my desk. Both real ones and ones I conjure up in my head. And it's probably the ones I conjure up in my head that are the most taxing. I have one great problem. I'm a sinner. And Jesus Christ fixed that problem once and for all. Praise His name. So, eh, the other problems we can deal with. Praise Him that He didn't leave me to fix my sin problem on my own. In fact, I had no part in fixing it. Whew. I've made a mess out of plenty. I'm glad I wasn't left to try to fix my own sin problem. Aren't you glad? If you can't think of anything to praise God for in the morning... You're probably half asleep and need your first cup of coffee, but at least start with your salvation. It didn't disappear overnight. It's yours. No one can pluck me from the Father's hand. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We've been talking about how in your Bibles, all caps is Yahweh, capital L, lowercase o-r-d is Adonai, our Lord, our King. What a King. Everybody's got to be ruled by somebody. Who better than the Sovereign of the universe to be our Lord? And how majestic is your name in all the earth, even in the places where the name of Christ isn't exalted. It is. I think that's the only way you can go to Morocco and be surrounded by 99.9% Muslims and praise God's name. Amen over there? Amen. Maybe the name of God isn't on the lips of the people they're surrounded by, but His glory and majesty surround them every day. God is amongst the people of Morocco because He dwells inside the hearts of believers. Man seems insignificant compared to the glory of this king. Verse 1b through verse 2. David says, Who has displayed, or who have, it's so hard to say the, who have, but there's probably a plural of majesty here in the Bible. They speak of God in the plural because he's so majestic. They would use what's called the plural of majesty, but us as New Testament believers understand that God has revealed himself as a triune God. He's three persons in one. When we declare the great name of Yahweh, we are declaring how majestic is the name of the Trinity in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. It's a plural, plural your in the Hebrew. Our language only has, like, one you. Unless you're from the South, and then what is it? Y'all. Y'all. We, we need a second person plural. 
Y'all. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. David takes us from the highest of heights. His splendor isn't just in the heavens, it's above the heavens. God is, in his essence, outside time and space. We're not animus. God is not his creation. There was a time when there was no creation. There was never a time that there was no God. But David shrinks us all the way down to maybe the most fragile, sensitive, dependent, tender picture you can imagine. An infant. Not just an infant, but a nursing infant. To elaborate even further, not just an infant, David says, but a nursing infant, utterly dependent for all of his nutrition, all of his care. Look at this paradox. How does God establish strength when thinking of an infant? No man can become great until he's born and everybody starts a babe. Anyone who thinks much of himself needs to be reminded of his humble roots. Even the great, by great I say, renowned dictators of the world, Pol Pot and Mao Zedong and Hitler, Stalin, started out as babies. Somebody took care of them. All the self-proclaimed self-made men of the world, there is no self-made man. And as great as a nation is, it's only one generation away from utter ruin. One generation of not taking care of the infants and nursing babes. And your whole empire comes crashing down. Where's China headed? A whole generation of eliminating their female children. Who's going to bring on the next generation? What are all these young, restless, single men going to do with their lives. It makes me shudder. And to me, it's one of those signs we are close to the end. That great army is going to be unleashed eventually. Not to strike fear into your hearts this morning. But it does bring a bit of sobriety into our lives. Life isn't about getting up and making money and buying food and clothes and toys. We're part of something much bigger. Much bigger. And David's bringing us down, 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 down compared to God who's so big. Makes all those who think they contend with Almighty God look foolish. As Andy was saying last week, we start out as babes and we kind of leave as babes. That's the fate we all have. Unless you're going to be like Enoch or Elijah and just just get taken up. That'd be great. David says in verse 3, When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers. Oh, that's beautiful. The heavens. The billions upon billions upon billions of stars. God's finger painting. saw this uh, Louis Giglio video where he was saying the earth is, if you made the earth the size of a golf ball, 
Okay, so proportionately, if the earth was a golf ball, I love golf. <laughs> I always keep a golf ball in my pocket. Who do, you know, who doesn't? You never, you never know when you're going to get invited to go play. So you couldn't, you couldn't draw a dot on here with a fine point Sharpie that would represent you. We're, we're that insignificant. But if you said the earth was the size of a golf ball, then just our sun would, would have to be a golf ball 15 feet in diameter. And you could fit 915 earths inside that, that sun. And as far as stars go, as far as suns go, that's a tiny one. So far uh, recorded by man, the largest star in our galaxy um, it's called Canis Major, the big dog. Yeah, the big dog. It would take seven quadrillion golf balls. I can't even fathom that number. Seven quadrillion golf. I had a round once where I think I almost hit seven quadrillion shots. But seven quadrillion golf balls to fill up Canis Major. And that's, that's the biggest star we've found in our galaxy. And yet there's... Billions of galaxies. It's, it's unfathomable. It's incomprehensible. If, if you're going to study astronomy for any length of time and you feel big afterwards, something's wrong with you. And yet our scientists have discovered that the odds of there being another planet that could sustain human life, the odds are so astronomically large that it's a statistical impossibility. Might as well shut off that big radar that's sending out messages looking for other intelligent life. We are living on a special privileged planet. David says, the moon and the stars which you've ordained. He didn't have the knowledge we had today, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, the principle's still the same. When you look up and you just see the majesty of God's handiwork, it doesn't feel so small. How can you feel like a somebody when there's like 7 billion people on the planet right now? Who cares about me? What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Here's, here's the turning point, the hinge point of the whole psalm. Wait a minute. What is man that you take thought of him? There's, a, there's a, a double meaning in that line. Yeah, what is man that you take thought of him? But what is man that you do take thought of him? Right? I'm a nobody, but I'm a somebody. I'm not special, but I am. Why, God? Why would you care? The C.S. Lewis wrote in the screw tape letters as uh, he's recording a hypothetical conversation between two demons, an uncle and his nephew. The uncle says to the nephew, I don't know why he cares so much for the hairless bipeds. <laughs> hairless bipeds. Some of us not as hairless as others. But, yeah, we, we, when we don't take ourselves so seriously and we really think about ourselves, we are kind of goofy. We are, we are kind of goofy. We, we've got crazy ideas. We struggle with the darndest things. Seems like five or six, 20 times a day, I say, really? Really? People did that? I mean, i got to turn the news off sometimes. I can't handle it anymore. Really? 
The kids are choosing their own gender now. Really? Really? How does that work? I thought that was kind of set. People. Have you got so upset with people that you're just done with people? And then you're like, wait a minute. I'm people. I can't get away from myself. Boy, the world would be better if everyone was like me. No, you don't want that world. No. Yeah, a lot of awful lot of hairless bipeds walking around. And yet God, according to David, does consider us. He, he thinks about us. He has a plan for us. He takes care of us. He's intimately involved in each of our lives. What is man that you take thought of him? Stop asking people if you matter and ask your Creator if you matter. Who cares what the world says about you? It matters what God says about you. Well, you may not be famous. You may not be celebrity. You may not be the life of the party. You may not be the valedictorian. You may not have any important titles after your name. You may not come from money. You may not be an all-star. Even the all-stars can't be an all-star forever. But if you're in Christ, you're infinitely important to God. You'll be with Him forever and ever. He wants a forever relationship with you. You could be God's BFF, right? Best friend forever. Not only that, but God has actually assigned glory to man. Now, we like to assign glory to ourselves all the time. It's the wrong kind of glory. But listen to the words of God. You have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. I almost don't know how to handle that line. Because I'm working so hard in my Christian walk not to assign myself glory and majesty. And yet, in some real way, God assigns us glory and majesty. What does that mean I'm going to be co-heir with Christ? I'm going to reign with Christ? I mean, He's my King and the Lord of Lords and the perfect one, but He's my brother. I'm in the family of God. The Bible says believers will judge angels. How does that work? I'll let God figure out the details, but it's what His Word says. When I, when I dwell on it, instead of it puffing me up, it actually makes me more humble that God would assign such glory to us. In uh, the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew translation, excuse me, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Septuagint meaning 70, the story goes that 70 rabbis went to separate rooms and copied the Hebrew into Greek. And when they came out, there were seven matching copies. It's probably a wives' tale. But they needed confidence that the Greek version of the Old Testament was something that could be trusted. So they kind of made up the story. Jesus quoted the Septuagint more often than he quoted the Hebrew. It was his Bible. You know, whatever translation you like to carry around with you, Jesus liked to use the Septuagint. And the Septuagint translates God here 
uh, the word Elohim in the Greek as angels. As angels. Little gods. Whether it's God or little angels, the principle, the fact remains that we're just a little lower. Now, how could we be a little lower than God? It's obviously hyperbole. But compared to the rest of God's creation, okay? Compared to the rest of God's creation, we are a little lower than God. Everything else pales in comparison because we are the only created thing that what? Bears the image of God himself. That is an extremely privileged position. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, you have the mark of the image of God. Every human life has ultimate dignity. Every human life is precious, no matter what your accomplishments, no matter what your title, whether you're abled or disabled, whether you're famous or completely anonymous. Every human life has dignity because we're created in the image of God. Nobody can assign that to you. It's been assigned by God Almighty Himself. Why, brothers and sisters, are we seeking approval from man? Why does it matter so much to us? You matter because you bear God's image. Not only that, though, we're at the climax of the poem, which always makes me, when I'm studying, dig a little deeper. Why all the work to get me to this one point? David says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And at first reading, you're like, well, the son of man, the next generation. But the son of man is a messianic title. The book of Daniel prophesying about the Messiah called him the Son of Man. Jesus, it was his favorite title for himself, Son of Man. He is Son of God, Son of Man. This poem has messianic overtones. Did David know when he was writing this, he was writing about Messiah? I don't know what David knew and what he didn't know, what he was thinking, what he wasn't thinking. I just know he was inspired and led by the Holy Spirit. And this psalm certainly has messianic implications. The Son of Man, did God not take care of the Son of Man? Did God not take care of the Messiah? Was He not the most glorious, most special man ever born? If God didn't find mankind significant, then why would He come down Himself and take on human flesh? He didn't come as a cow, or a bird, or a dog. Sorry, dog lovers. Cats who think they're God. He came as a man. What does that tell us? How significant we are. God would come as man. Of all the things God could come and reveal himself as, he revealed himself in a body of flesh and blood. And of all things to redeem his people with, he redeems us with his blood. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. The writer of Hebrews takes Psalm 8 and turns it into a messianic description of of Jesus when you get to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.6, 
Well, one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? It's a, it's a paraphrase of Psalm 8. Okay? But it's inspired by God and it's inscripturated. So, you know, when we paraphrase the scripture, it's not the same as scripture. So we, we study God's word and we memorize it word perfect if, if we can. And yet, the writer of Hebrews says, um, You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. In other words, Christ, a man has been given all authority by God. Out of all the things God could reveal Himself as, He comes as a man in order to reign. All things in the universe are in subjection under a human being. We have great significance just as human beings, but if you are in Christ... Redeemed by His blood, you have special everlasting significance. It's a thing that... Things that have great significance, there will be a greater judgment. The animals aren't going to be judged on the last day. This keeps us absolutely humble. Yes, we have ultimate significance because we are made in God's image, and God Himself became a man. But for those who refuse to believe and bow the knee to Jesus Christ, that ultimate significance they have as a, as a human being becomes a terrible ultimate significance in their judgment. They won't be like the animals who just burn up. There's judgment. And yet for those who are believers in Christ, being a man, woman, you're God's treasured possession. You're a child of God. You're, he calls you His own. He takes up dwelling place inside you when you come to faith. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's doing His good work in this world in and through human beings. As Paul said, this great treasure, the gospel, is found in clay pots. Really the word for chamber pots. I'm an Andy Gump. I'm a, I'm a porta potty with this great treasure inside of me. In and of myself, I'm nothing, but God has said I am something significant and important. And what I do and what I say and when I live a life of obedience has ultimate significance, such that the Scriptures tell us on the final day for believers there will be a different kind of judgment. He will judge every word and every work. There will be a great refining. And things of no significance ultimately will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. But that which we do for the sake of God and the sake of the gospel will remain as jewels in our crown. And when we take our crowns and cast them at the feet of the great one, Jesus Christ, 
So Paul says in Philippians 2, to do nothing then from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Stop trying to strive for your own worldly significance. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. The worst way to find significance in life is to make it all about you, which you would think would be the way to find significance. It has the opposite effect. Be like Christ. How so? The one with ultimate significance, the Christ, the Lord of Lord, King of Kings, came and lived as a man. What attitude did Christ have? Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, speaking to believers, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who is at work in you. He's in you. You looking for significance? There it is. God is at work in you. And God's not going to do any work in you that isn't significant. God doesn't waste his time. God doesn't have aimless hobbies. God doesn't fritter his time away in front of the TV. Right? Oh, he rests. He rested on the seventh day. But it is God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God working in you brings him good pleasure. It's his good pleasure that he would work in you. Your obedience to Christ isn't for nothing. Wouldn't you like to live a life that is God's good pleasure? Couldn't you sleep soundly at night, knowing my life mattered today. What I did matters because God was working in and through me. I was investing in the kingdom. I was fulfilling the Great Commission. I was manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. I was making disciples today. I was showing Christ at my place of work. I was showing Christ to my children in the home. There's your significance. Not in your awards and your adulations and, and your degrees. Sorry, Nathan. I think you figured it out by like the second semester. <laughs> it's about the work, not about the diploma. That's just a piece of paper man gives to men. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to know I'm living a life of significance. And when I walk in obedience to Christ, I can be assured that my work matters and my life matters. Whether you have one convert after 30 years of ministry, 
just like the great Adonim Judson, right? I always butcher his name. We aren't going to see all the fruit of our ministry. But on that final day, God will show us the fruit. You'll get to meet people in heaven that you influenced for the gospel's sake. They're there because you walked in obedience and told them about Christ and modeled Christ. And so David ends the psalm with us as rulers. Wasn't that our original intention, our original purpose? God made man in His image, put him in a garden. He said, tend the garden, have dominion over my creation. You make Him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of seas. Beloved, you are ambassadors of Christ. He's given you a stewardship here on earth. Whatever your circle of influence is, be faithful in it and know that it is significant. It matters. You don't have to be Billy Graham or Charles Spurgeon or the Apostle Paul. All your work matters when done in the name of Christ. And then the psalm ends the way it started. After considering all this, what could you do but just to sing out and praise? Praise! Oh Lord, our God, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Not my name, Your name. Thank You, thank you for choosing me and calling me Your own and giving me real work to do. The love and grace of God compels us to live a life of obedience, humbly preparing our hearts for the kingdom to come, eagerly anticipating the physical return of Jesus, but confidently and willingly ready to serve Him right now and serve Him forevermore, knowing that our obedience and submission results in glory to God, but also in Him taking pleasure in our love and good works now. All right, are you in the right spot of tension now? You feel significant? You feel like your life matters? It, it does. It does. It really does if you know Christ and He is in you and working through you. Amen. Let's praise Him together. Bow our heads in prayer. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Oh, how we long to see the day that every tongue confesses you are Lord. Oh, we long for your return, O King, to see you as you really are and to be like you. Oh, empower us by your Spirit, God, that we would be found faithful to do your good work. Save us from feeling sorry for ourselves because we feel like we don't matter. When in our heart of hearts, the problem is we think we matter too much, Lord. Put us in a right place, right thinking. That because you've chosen us, died for us, you live for us, and dwell in us, we have ultimate significance. And our work matters. Thank you, God. Send us on our way this morning with renewed confidence and strength and vigor to do your good work. In Jesus' name, amen.